Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be talking to Dr. Meng Siak about veterinary dermatology and antimicrobial resistance. Dr. Siak is a board-certified veterinary dermatologist with the Australian and New Zealand College of Veterinary Scientists. He studied at Murdoch University in Perth, WA, then did an internship in veterinary dermatology before completing his residency at Murdoch. Meng has extensive experience in the diagnosis and treatment of complicated skin and ear diseases, including allergies, immune-mediated skin disease and chronic ear diseases. Hello, Meng, and welcome to our podcast this morning. Thank you so much for being here, and how are you? Oh, good morning, Sarah. I'm very well here, thank you. Excellent. Uh, So today we are going to be diving into the world of veterinary dermatology and specifically hoping to have a good chat about the antibiotic resistance problem um, that's emerging. But before we do, I just wanted to um, understand exactly what your background was, um, why you wanted to be a vet in the first place and how you ended up as a dermatologist. So can you just let us know your story? Oh, absolutely, Sarah. So um, I came to Perth to study veterinary medicine in 2002, uh, and I've always uh, maintained a keen interest in veterinary dermatology. I just find it so fascinating. So after graduation in 2006, uh, I did a year of general practice uh, in far north Queensland, and this is followed by a long journey of internship residency uh, before I finally became a veterinary dermatologist in 2014. I'm always fascinated by the world of skin diseases. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think if, you know, we're very lucky in the sense that uh, it's an organ that you can actually visualize very clearly without any uh, invasive diagnostics. And the challenges involved uh, just continue to spur me to uh, pursue this interest further. And um, it's something that you were always interested in even at uni, was it, from the very start? Absolutely. Um, I pretty much started um, spending time with the uh, veterinary dermatology since I was in fourth year university mm-hmm. and I actually organized special topics as well. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> so for those who went to uni with me, uh, they saw, knew I always have an interest in veterinary dermatology. That's amazing. And you stayed on at Murdoch to do your internship and residency, is that correct? I did, I did. So I went back uh, and did my training um, one and a half years of internship and then followed by three years of residency uh, before I was eligible to take my exams. And how were those exams? I've heard um, when I was going through university and um, working with the residents at Sydney University, I've heard those exams can be really tough and, and quite sort of life-stealing while you're studying for them. Were they were they as bad as what they say? <laughs> Uh, well, sir, I've got to remember, being born in Singapore, I did the military for two and a half years. So uh, it was difficult. It was mentally very challenging, yeah. but yet uh, it's very rewarding. Um, I'm very, very thankful uh, that I can be a veteran dermatologist and do the wonderful thing that um, you know I enjoy doing every day. So it's, it's tough, but uh, if it's not easy, you know, uh, you know, everyone will be doing it. So I love the challenge and I think it's the best challenge for me. Oh, you sound like the perfect person for the job. (laughs) 
Um, and tell us a bit about where you work now. It's a, a new um, a new specialist clinic in Perth. Yes, that's right. Uh, I'm invited by um, the Waves Hospital in Western Australia to start a, a dermatology referral service. Uh, and we're seeing uh, very interesting cases here, uh, reconnecting with um, lots of friends uh, from the veterinary world. And um, yeah, we're building the business uh, slowly but surely and seeing lots of cool cases here. And what are the specific services that you um, sort of offer from that clinic? What, what, what's your, your day job, so to speak? Yes. So, uh, so what we as the veterinary dermatologists do most of the time is we see a lot of allergic dogs and cats. Uh, so we offer allergy testing. We do intradermal testing as well as serology testing. We also uh, deal with a lot of multi-drug resistant uh, infections mm-hmm. uh, affecting the skin and ears. And we also deal with the really uncomplicated and unusual uh, immune-mediated skin diseases. So really, um, you know, everything that you expect yourself to see a human dermatology, uh, we can do the same for your uh, animal patients. Oh, that sounds very interesting and difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Probably more difficult than a human dermatologist, I would say, because you've got the, um, the battle of the patient not being able to speak to you. Which is um, That's right. always yeah, the challenge of being a vet. <laughs> <laughs> challenges, challenges are always welcome. It's, it's always good. <laughs> so I guess we can sort of jump in a bit more to some specific topics that we wanted to cover today. Um, so in terms of, um, we know that your your main interest in the world of um, veterinary medicine is dermatology, um, and that's why you've become a dermatologist. So congratulations on that very difficult journey. It sounds like you've been on. Um, but in terms of um, within that world of dermatology, what are your sort of main interests um, that you li- the cases that you like to see um, or the research projects that you like to take on? Yeah, so when I was a resident, uh, we had to publish, uh, do publications. And my research topic was actually on methicillin resistance, cephalococcus C intermediate in dogs. So at that time, uh, which was around early, maybe 2008, 10, mm-hmm. um, we started to see really resistant bacterial infection popping out from, uh, from in dogs and cats. So that spurred my interest and we did a, a study where we published the first paper on this topic in dogs in Australia. And ever since that paper was published, uh, our colleagues over East and in New Zealand uh, have started reporting the same same, same disease. So uh, uh, what I really would love is to do a longitudinal study on whether dogs can carry these bacteria even as their underlying diseases are being managed. And most importantly, what are the risks of these bacteria spreading to the owners? Yeah. And as we know, in, hu- yeah, in human medicine, MRSA or methicillin-resistant staph, cephalococcus aureus is a major, major uh, issue. And uh, we have now known that there is a risk of us contacting the same bacteria. So I would really love to continue my research into this topic and provide you know, both pet owners and veterinarians uh, the knowledge to what recommendations should we be giving uh, if we have a dog or cat with this condition. Yeah, and so what do you do when you see a case of this? I mean, can you take us through step-by-step what happens from the moment the patient walks in the door to see you and and in terms of diagnostics and um, the treatments that you sort of tend to reach for? What what would you advise? 
So I suppose the first uh, the first misconception I'd like to clarify is that antibodies are actually good. Uh, we have been using antibodies to you know treat bacteria infections and save life for a very very long time. Now, unfortunately, with the you know increased use of antibiotics for any reason, we're starting to see resistance developing. Mm-hmm. So antibodies do not cause resistance. But unfortunately, they do select for resistance. Mm-hmm. So many a times what we know is that in dogs and cats, secondary bacterial infections either affecting the skin or ears are always secondary to underlying disease. Yeah. And the most common condition are allergies. So if you have an allergic patient, they are predisposed to having recurrent bacterial infections. And obviously, we will treat them with antibiotics and they will improve and they'll feel better. But unless the underlying allergies are well-managed, the recurring nature of the infections and subsequent the recurring use of antibiotics will unfortunately select for resistant bacteria. So when I have a patient that comes in with a long history of antibiotic usage, and especially in those cases where it hasn't been as effective as before, then I really start to worry. Mm -hmm. And what we do is we collect a swab from the skin and we send it for a bacterial culture and a standard panel of antibiotic testing mm-hmm. that will confirm whether the dog does or does not have a methicillin resistant bacterial infection. And thereafter, uh, using a combination of the susceptibility testing results and experience, we then select an appropriate antibody to treat the infection. And when the infection has finally settled, we then um, sort of uh, pursue investigations into underlying allergies uh, to make sure the infection doesn't have a chance to come back again. Okay, so in terms of um, trying to prevent the infection coming back again, once you've identified the um, type of allergy that's present, um, do, do you tend to sort of reach for intradermal allergy testing um, as well as serology testing, or are you doing one first and then the other? And then take us through exactly the steps that you would take um, in terms of producing that um, allergy vaccine, so to speak. Absolutely, so that's a very good question. So we have long been using intradermal testing um, to identify the allergens that a patient is allergic to. And it's only more recently uh, that serology has become sensitive and specific enough for us to use it as a diagnostic tool. So what I do is the most important part is we've got to get a very detailed history and then you do intradermal testing and you try and correlate the results of the test uh, to the history uh, and the environment of the patient. And many a times, if the, uh, the positive reactions that came out are probably not enough to explain, you know, the seasonal flares or the non-seasonality of the itching, then we will recommend a serology testing at the same time. Mm-hmm. And this is because we now know that allergens can be um, absorbed through three routes. Now, we can absorb allergens through uh, the skin, Mm -hmm. we can inhale, or we can sometimes ingest. Well, not us, but dogs are ingest the allergens. So we believe that the intradermal testing may be more reliable for allergens that are absorbed through the skin, whereas the serology test uh, picks up those that are absorbed through inhalation or ingestion. And many a times, we do combine both the results so that we get a clear picture to select for the most appropriate allergens to be placed into the allergy vaccine. And so the um, serology testing, is that actually looking at um, food allergens? When you say the allergens are ingested, 
Are they the same allergens that might contact the skin or are you talking specifically about food allergens? Now, at this stage, uh, there is no reliable test that we can do to identify food allergies, okay? Mm-hmm. And it just shows how complicated the pathogenesis of food allergies is. So what we do know from the human medicine side is that we know that you can get allergens through the skin. And, uh, and the reason for this is what we call a defective skin barrier. Mm. And and what we do is that we know that with the allergens, you can absorb through the skin inhalation or injection. So basically what we believe is that if you have um, a, a really strong positive reaction on the intradermal testing, that may allow you to uh, formulate a vaccine based on those results. But if the result doesn't explain the clinical picture, then we combine it with serology testing. And once you've so once you've identified the underlying allergens and you've started the dog on the allergen vaccine, what sort of topical therapies are you using in these patients, um, both to sort of try and heal that skin barrier and also prevent um, future secondary infections? And can you tell us a bit sort of about the the long term maintenance of these dogs after you've treated that um, resistant infection? Absolutely. So the skin barrier is very important. Uh, in the sense that it will hopefully reduce penetration of the allergens into the skin. Mm -hmm. But also there's some evidence that it could prevent sensitization to new allergens. So we use a lot of topical moisturizers in dogs, uh, mainly containing um, products, uh, active ingredients such as ceramides, phytosynthesine, uh, and we also supplement them with oral omega-3. Mm-hmm. And we do believe that uh, this will improve the skin barrier, uh, you know, to, to help the patient in, in the long term. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of topical therapies as well, so if you have a dog that is uh, intensively pruritic or itchy, we need to stop the itch. And mm-hmm. one of the strategies that we use is to use uh, topical cortisone. Mm-hmm. And this will control the inflammation and the itch and prevent uh, further trauma. If you have a dog that has a history of recurrent bacterial infections, now at least initially, we do use shampoos that are, are contain antiseptic ingredients. And what we do know is that in allergic dogs, they have a higher um, population of bacteria on the skin. And as a consequence, when they flare, they flare much quicker uh, than in non-allergic dogs. So what we do is if you use a shampoo therapy, you can try and maintain the population of bacteria on the skin and thereby hopefully control against major flare-ups. And the benefits of this is that if you do have a dog that flares with a bacterial infection, it will be less severe and you may be able to control it using topical therapy instead of reaching for more oral antibiotics. Yeah, that's that's sort of the point I was getting to. Um, if we're seeing such a you know an emergence of antibiotic resistance, if we can try and avoid using oral antibiotics as much as possible, obviously that's going to benefit you know both our, our pets and and humans alike. Um, so, is there ever a case where you see a um, a, a secondary skin infection that you do identify as resistant that you just try topical therapies to start with or are you always reaching for oral um, antibiotics for that first time? Yeah, so when we um, identify a bacterial infection in a dog or cat, we tend to uh, classify into surface, superficial or deep. Okay. So surface and superficial, obviously, as its name implies, it only affects the superficial layers of the skin. 
And in those conditions, you can effectively treat the infection using just topical therapies. Okay. Now, if you have a deep infection, so infection that tends to affect in the deeper layers, so the dermis and the fat layer, then antibodies are often indicated. But even then, if you combine it with topical antimicrobials, you can effectively control the deeper infection with much shorter causes of antibiotics uh, and the patient will obviously recover much quicker. Are you going for sort of high doses and shorter courses these days? Or um, are you still sort of using them for three upwards, four to six weeks, um, depending on, on the culture results, obviously the repeat culture? Yeah, so in the human field, obviously there's a new trend and recommendation towards shorter courses um, uh, so that you don't have a prolonged course of antibiotics. Now, indoors is still a controversy um, and no one has achieved the correct answer, to, unfortunately. And we have to remember that um, the, the structure of the skin in dogs and humans are quite different and the diseases that we're using antibiotics for are also quite different. Mm. So generally, we, um, we treat dogs and cats with antibiotics long enough to treat the infection, which means that follow-up rechecks are important. And once the infection has resolved, then we definitely recommend we stop the antibiotics straight away. So generally, if you have a dog with a deep infection, for example, they need a standard course of usually at least four weeks of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And this is because many a times, as the body starts to heal, um, it often looks better on the surface but there will still be ongoing infection deeper down in the layers, which are not visible to the naked mm-hmm. eye. So superficial infections, general guide is two to three weeks of all antibiotics. And for deep infection, it's four to six weeks. Okay. And we always, always try and aim for, uh, to, to start off with the first line antibiotics. And we try and preserve the use of second line and third line antibiotics for those cases that are resistant to the first line so that we discourage development of resistance. And what happens um, if you actually get a bacteria that's resistant to everything that you're testing it for? Does that ever happen? Well, yes, unfortunately. So being a referral hospital, I do see uh, cases of what we call excessively resistant um, uh, antibody, uh, sorry, excessively resistant bacteria. And thankfully, we do have some tricks out of sleeve, um, and we sometimes reach for what we call the third-line antibiotics. And this is good in the sense that because they have not been used uh, commonly in uh, in the general practice scenario, uh, I do find that they are still effective. Okay. Yeah, so uh, I have seen one or two that's only susceptible to just one or two out of 15 antibiotics. Wow. Uh, and thankfully, uh, we managed to uh, control those infections effectively and make sure they don't come back again. There are some antibiotics uh, that we try not to use. Uh, so, And the reasons for this is these are being used in the human field uh, for the most resistant infection. And because there's some evidence that the resistant genes could be spread to the human bacteria, mm. uh, I think it's probably not ethical for us to be using it in our, our animal patients. And what are the names of those antibiotics that you try not to use, Meng? <laughs> uh, one big one is uh, lenozolic. So it's used in humans for uh the most resistant staph aureus. Uh-huh. Uh, and I know of some case reports uh, where we use it in dogs, uh, but obviously it's something that is 
probably at this stage still frown upon in the veterinary world. Yeah, right. Just sort of going back to to why this develops in the first place. So, if a dog comes in with a you know a, a multi um, antibiotic resistance issue, is it always the case that in in its history it's had multiple courses of um, sort of broad spectrum antibiotics in the past, or can they ever um, just um, have these bacteria just present in their skin without having a history of of multiple courses of antibiotics? To basically develop a multi drug resistant infection, I think there's, there's multiple factors. And there are risk factors that we have uh, identified through retrospective studies uh, in, in, in dogs. And some of these risk factors uh, think, are definitely uh, include you know, previous use of antibiotics. Uh, and there's a case and there's a case series, I believe, uh, of um, inappropriate use of antibiotics in a, in a, in a breeding kennel. Okay. And there's also risk such as hospitalization. Mm-hmm. So like in humans, I mean, unfortunately, nosocomial infections can occur. Uh, and so yeah. there are many risk factors. And I think, you know, uh, the patients that I see, they often have multiple risk factors and combined with uh, underlying disease that actually causes infections such as allergies or uh, hormonal diseases, uh, all together, put together, uh, they do uh, increase the risk of them having a, a resistant bacterial infection. Yes. Uh, do I see dogs that uh, rarely have antibody causes in the past? Yes, but they are really, really in the minority. Mm-hmm. So I have seen uh, a couple of dogs in my you know, 10 or 12 years of referral hospital service where they have only one cause of antibiotics and then they develop um, the resistance strain. Oh, so wow. it's all very interesting. Yeah, very scary, but yeah. very interesting. And I think it just emphasizes where, uh, in the case where, when we put dogs on antibiotics, we should have rechecks at the end of the course to make sure that the infections are resolved. Mm-hmm. Because if they haven't, then that's where you've got to be um, thinking of whether this dog could have a resistance strain. And so are you checking them just by doing a second culture and sensitivity test, just with a swab? So, so, so if I have a dog that, uh, so we identify or confirm that the dog has a bacterial infection by doing a very simple non-invasive test called cytology, mm-hmm. and it can be done in-house. So basically what we do is we take a, a, a sample of the uh, skin lesions and we stain it and we look down the microscope and we look for bacterial organisms. So if I have a dog that, is, uh, that has an infection, uh, at the end of the antibody course, I will have a look at the patient again make sure the lesions have all resolved. And if there are still any residual lesions, then I'll repeat the cytology and look down the microscope. Okay. Now, in some dogs, uh, there will be a, a significant reduction in the numbers. So what that means is that the antibodies are working, but you need a longer course. And once the bacteria have resolved, then you can uh, safely uh, stop the antibiotics. But if they don't, then that's where I will recommend a culture to identify what is the offending bacteria mm-hmm. and why is it not responding to the, the antibiotics. And talking all about antibiotics, when when the patient has finished their antibiotics and you're, and you're sort of trying to focus on you know the underlying causes of the skin disease, like, like you said, with the allergies and things, obviously we know that, that some antibiotics um, target um, the gut microflora and, and other sort of um, communities of microorganisms in the body. Is there any um, sort of approach that you take with trying to rebuild a healthy microbiome, um, whether on the skin or in the gut, um, after antibiotics? Do you do you ever use probiotics in that way, or, or sort of what's your feelings about that? I think uh, definitely on the human side, there's evidence to show that um, 
Uh, if you restore the normal gut my, microbiome, you can protect against allergies and even immune-mediated diseases. Mm. Now, um, the, the amount of research and the strength of research in our uh, dogs and cats are unfortunately are not as strong. Mm. Uh, and obviously, you know, um, the, the, the dogs and cats, they have very different bacteria species in their gut compared to humans. So we can't just reach for a human probiotic or prebiotic and, and, and give it to our, our pets. Um, not quite for the gut at this stage. Uh, I think there's insufficient evidence to make uh, specific recommendations on that. But definitely for the skin, the skin barrier, uh, using moisturizer, what we're trying to do is to restore the skin microbiome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that do help in the long-term uh, maintenance and management of allergic dogs and cats. Yeah, definitely. And I know... Um in human dermatology, they are starting to use things like topical probiotics for the skin to try and establish a sort of healthier balance. Um, do, you, do you think that that's something that we might see sort of in the future in, in veterinary dermatology? I know we do lag a bit with um, human research, unfortunately, but it's definitely an interesting um, topic to be explored, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think it was not long ago that we uh, finally did a... Um, uh, sort of identify the normal microbiome in normal dogs and in atopic dogs. And we're starting to learn so much from this information. And I do mm-hmm. think in the near future, we'll be looking at more topical therapies aimed at restoring the skin barrier as well as the microbiome. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, that's another tool that we can use uh, to help our allergic patients. In terms of sort of, um, you know, the way of the future, we have touched on a, a few um, sort of ideas that, that we might um, be able to utilise. But in terms of reducing the incidence in antibiotic resistance um, in humans and in pets, what tips would you give to a general practitioner um, in, you know, choosing when or how they're going to be using antibiotics to try and um, sort of prevent the occurrence of, of multidrug resistance and, and just some general sort of um, takeaways for our listeners today? Yeah, so I suppose the, uh, the, the, the first thing that I always uh, uh, tell uh, general practitioners is that Bacterial infections in dogs and cats are always secondary to underlying disease. Mm-hmm. And that's where we should be uh, remembering to focus to how to ma- diagnose and manage these conditions. And the other tip I have is that we shouldn't be using second or third line antibiotics such as the fluoroquinolones mm-hmm. um, unless you have a reason to, to use them. And this is because of fluoroquinolones in the human medicine, in the human field, they have been associated with an increase in the risk of uh, methicillin resistance. So definitely um, try not to use them as a first line mm. and only reserve them for those cases that are confirmed to be resistant to the first line antibody before we reach for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so these are probably the two key points that I always uh, encourage uh practitioner to keep in mind uh, when they see patients in their clinic. It's sometimes so hard working in general practice, only having sort of 10 or 15 minutes in a consultation. I think, um, you know, there's a a lot of cases where antibiotics are are used and reached for where perhaps they they may not have been 100% necessary. Um, then, and unfortunately, we have the, the other problem of, um, you know, adherence to our um, sort of our treatment plan at home. Um, there's, you know, sometimes there's little that we can do. Um, we can't sort of go, go to the client's house every day and make sure that they're, you know, finishing courses and coming back for their rechecks. It's, um, I think it's an approach that 
both us as practitioners and um, and our clients and and human um, medicine professionals as well all need to be tackling together. Yeah, absolutely. And and I was quite thankful that I spent one year uh, in general practice, and I can mm. definitely understand you know the frustration of owners just wanting a quick fix. Uh, they just want antibiotics for every diseases, and you know, and unfortunately, they often do not come back for rechecks. And I think, you know, um, I think that's very, very important. And we usually recommend, uh, make general recommendations about the length of uh, consultation for uh, uh, with skin diseases. So, for example, I mean, I know when I was in practice, you know, our consultations are around 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, our initial consult is an hour and our reach is half an hour. Yeah, Yeah, and I think, you know, uh, there is a, a, a possibility of, uh, practitioner organizing a, a skin consult where they could probably allocate an extra five to ten minutes uh, to the patient. Yeah. And also definitely educating uh, your your support staff, so nurses, your vets, uh, so that if everyone is on the same page and everyone is well-trained in understanding about when we should be using antibiotics and when we shouldn't be, mm-hmm. uh, I think it makes it easier for owners to understand why we are not reluctant, but we want to make sure when we do use antibiotics, um, we definitely do it for the right reason. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I do believe that the general sort of community of, you know, pet owners um, and and people um, just without pets, they are starting to realise that, that, you know, this is a growing issue. Um, and one day we are going to run out of antibiotics and there is going to be those, those bacteria which are just resistant to everything. Um, so hopefully, you know, people are realising that, um, having to, you know, take that time to do those simple diagnostic tests, um, do the cytology, um, take a little bit more time. Um, I'm sure that clients will actually start to appreciate that and feel like they're getting the best service. Absolutely. I think, you know, um, clients are getting uh, more inquisitive and more uh, interested in uh, the treatment that their pets are getting. Mm. Uh, and I think it's a good thing because by understanding uh, why vets uh, do certain tests, uh, they're more, you know, they're more able to understand the reasons for that and the importance of having rechecks regularly mm. to make sure that their pet health is being, you know, um, being being managed correctly. Before we go, just a couple more things. Um, where can people find you? Um, I, I know that we've mentioned that you practice in Perth, um, but is there a website that they can find you um, or the clinic on? Are you able to give us those details? Oh, absolutely. I'd love to share where <laughs> we work out of. So the hospital is uh, it's called Western Australia uh, Veterinary Emergency Speciality. So we are based in Success, which is south of the river, uh, along Belia Drive. Mm-hmm. And we are a team of um, uh, specialists from the different departments. So I work alongside uh, internal medicine specialists, mm-hmm. uh, surgeons, critical emergency specialists. And we have uh, two radiologists on site as well. So, wow. um, so do yeah. So uh, we do have a website, um, wavets.com.au. Yep. And we also have a Facebook page uh, that we sometimes post out really cool and interesting cases, especially from the dermatology department. Oh, cool. So if you are interested in um, seeing some of these interesting cases, uh, do feel free to give us a like and you can see some of the cases that we post um, you know, on a sort of fortnightly to monthly basis. 
And in terms of, um, of of making an appointment with you, do people have to go through a referring vet to get to you or can people book directly? So we always work uh, together with uh, your local vet, your primary care vet. Mm-hmm. And I think this relationship is important so that we get the best outcome for your patient. Yeah. So we, are, we accept referrals um, through your, your local vet. So if you have a patient that you think will benefit from coming to see us, uh, do have a check with local vet and they can definitely organise the referral for your pet. Well, thank you so much, Meng, for being um, one of our very first guests on our Pure Animal podcast. I've really enjoyed discussing everything skin with you. You're a wealth of knowledge um, and just a great person to chat to. Are you able to leave our listeners with a final pearl of wisdom? Oh, well, thank you, Sarah, for, for having me. I'm, I'm very privileged to be uh, on the podcast. It's all very new and very exciting for me. Uh, what's the wisdom? Um, definitely, if your pet has itchy skin, it's not because they're killing themselves. Usually, it's because they're allergic. Mm. Well, thank you so much. I'll let you get back to your um, busy day. I'm sure you've got lots of consultations all booked in. And thank you for taking the time out of that day um, to be with us this morning. Uh, thank you so much, Sarah. I really enjoyed doing the podcast <laughs> and I wish you the very best for your future episodes as well. Thanks, Meng. We'll probably have you back one day. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to do that. <laughs> <laughs> this is Pure Animal Podcast and I'm Dr. Sarah Howard. <laughs>